Welcome to Structural Shifts by Aperture, a bi-weekly show that radically reimagines the future of work, society, and business. We take a devil's advocate approach to exploring the massive shifts transforming our economies and our world, and our guests are not afraid to challenge the status quo. To learn more about Aperture, visit Aperture.co. Today, your host, Ben Robinson, is sitting down with Manos Skizas, the lead in regulation and reg tech at the Judge Business School's Center for Alternative Finance at the University of Cambridge. Ben and Manos discuss how regulatory change is accelerating so fast that people alone can't deal with it and what a tech solution looks like. They also talk about whether we are solving this problem at scale, how much innovation are we seeing thanks to AI, and the Regulatory Genome Project, which is a long-term project that maps out all global regulation, offering the marked-up rules as open data and allowing developers and firms to build their own applications. Before joining the Center for Alternative Finance, Manos worked for a leading London-based regtech startup and also served as a regulator with the UK's FCA. Enjoy the show. Manos, thank you very much for coming on the Structural Shifts podcast. Thanks for having me on the show, Ben. Maybe let's start by you talking about your background, because I think it's useful for our listeners to know that you've seen this interplay of finance, tech, and regulation from many different angles. So if you don't mind, Manos, just tell us kind of, you know, how you started off in this world. Sure. Um, so I first got involved with writing and reading about regulation back in 2008. I, at the time, I was uh, was a very, very junior lobbyist at uh, an association for accountants, the the ACCA. And because I, I, I had their access to finance brief, inevitably around that time, I, I had to feed into the discussion around Basel III and the implications for financing of small businesses. But before long, I was talking and writing primarily about fintech and and regulation at some point i made the jump over to i guess what i thought at the time was about the dark side so i joined the the fca the uk regulator i spent some time there leading their work at working level on things like crowdfunding or their approach to small businesses surprisingly political and and fraught topics and then moved on to a London-based RegTech startup where I was their head of regulatory content operations and, and also had the product brief for a, for a short period of time. And then, of course, the rest is history. I joined the Cambridge Centre for Alternative Finance where I lead their thought leadership uh, practice as well as their applied research program on RegTech and machine-readable regulation. We're going to come back to the regulatory genome, the, the project that you're working but before we get there i think we should sort of you know zoom out and talk a bit about the whole terrain of regulatory compliance and, wh- and why why it faces so many challenges so may- maybe let's start from the point of view of a regulated financial institution why is it so time consuming and expensive for banks and other financial institutions to comply with regulation well, all right. Let's let's start from from the top line, if you if you will. It it, it costs something in the order of four percent of turnover for a major financial institution to comply with regulation. Again, that's that's turnover. That's not you know operating margins. That's not profit. It's it's colossal amounts of money at the at the global scale. And why does it cost so much? Well, I guess uh, there there hasn't been a, a time in, in very recent memory when financial services wasn't heavily regulated. But since the financial crisis in particular, there's been a an explosion 
in in regulation that has seen the the amount of regulatory notifications rise i think about uh, seven or eight fold between 2008 and 2018 so i guess the, the the key point is the cost is driven primarily by how demanding the regulatory framework is and the pace of change now it's not the same for every part of the of the regulated sector so a tier 1 bank will probably recognize the pace of change as I describe it, whereas, let's say, you know, a smaller asset manager might not. But by and large, there's been an explosion in regular requirements. At the same time, there's also been an explosion in the sheer amount of data that firms hold, not just the ones that they have to hold for regulatory purposes, but the ones they hold for commercial purposes. You know, only recently, I think it was uh, HSBC, one of the major banks was creating a data lake that was in size exactly the same size as the entire internet had been four years earlier. It gives you a sense of perspective of, of what we're talking about. The pace of change and the volume of data has really long outstripped the ability of firms to just throw humans at the problem, human brains and human bodies. There's also other elements related to the way you manage institutions like that. So, you know, a, these ma- many of these major firms are matrix organizations where it's actually in a time of change quite easy to lose visibility as a senior manager of, you know, why you're complying the way you're complying, what exactly the outcomes you're achieving are, and so on and so forth. And at the same time, regulators are hardening their stance on personal responsibility of senior managers. You know, you've got senior managers regimes in in the UK, in Singapore, in Australia, in Hong Kong, and, you know, an increasing number of jurisdictions. So you're in this kind of the, the opposite of a sweet spot, if you will, or the sweet spot for vendors where the key decision makers are facing increasing scrutiny on a personal level and at the same time are losing visibility. So if you're a vendor, this is a good time to come in and try to sell them technology. What about if we look at it from the point of view of regulators? Because it sounds a bit like, you know, listening to you, the regulators really driving the agenda here, but which I guess is true to an extent, but the regulator doesn't control the pace of technology change, which which is driving innovation. And the regulator also only can really affect its jurisdiction. And I think one of the things that's become more apparent over recent years is there's a lot of competition between jurisdictions to attract you know, financial, new financial institutions and also new uh, fintech companies. And so does the regulator also see the need to do things differently in this space? Sure. I guess I guess there's two types of regulations depending on where they come from. So they are, there are rules that are fundamentally quite harmonized across the globe. AML, for example, prudential requirements, at least in in banking and insurance. And for those, the the rules come down from Mount Olympus, from the G20. They cascade through the standard setting bodies, the FATFs, the IOSCOs, and so on and so forth, and then finally into national regulators. Now, if you are a regulator working in that kind of area, subject matter area, then your key concern is, am I fundamentally compliant with international standards? And have I found the most efficient way to comply with them. AML is the usual example here because if you're not complying, that's a big problem. The whole country can get grey-listed or blacklisted and you just don't want to be there as a regulator. But, you know, even when the stakes aren't that high, regulators want to know that they're compliant with international standards. Then there are 
other areas of regulation which are closer to uh, the matter of technological change that you mentioned earlier, where uh, good practices are bubbling up from the bottom up. So areas like, I don't know, cybersecurity, data protection, you know, there is no single unifying force or no single cascade of standards from the top, but everyone wants to know how they compare to the jurisdictions that they see as competitors. So, uh, you know, if you're if you're in Malaysia, you're the Securities Commission, you will look at what MAS is doing in Singapore. You know, if you're, you know, if you are in the, in the UK, you'll be looking at what the Europeans are doing post Brexit. Pre-Brexit, obviously, you just had to comply. So this process of regulatory benchmarking is actually one of the factors driving regulatory change internationally. When at the CCF we surveyed regulators from 111 jurisdictions around the world, they told us that nearly every exercise of review of regulation in, in relation to fintech had involved some benchmarking exercise. And in more than half of these circumstances, it was the benchmarking exercise that had prompted regulators to change how they do things. What about COVID? Has that had much of an impact on the pace of regulatory change? Well, that, that's what our research tells us. So we, we have just come out of a significant project to, to basically carry out a rapid impact assessment of, of COVID on the fintech and regtech industries, as well as the regulators responsible for them. And obviously, what you hear from regulators is that COVID fundamentally changed the way they approach some areas of their work, not just their rulemaking, but also their, their hands-on supervision. But I guess the, what regulators tend to see here is some mega trends that have accelerated. So trends towards, you know, more or less material financial services, more online banking, more app-based financial services, and so on and so forth. But also greater demand on their resources so that they can do more uh, with fewer touch points with, with industry. And then, of course, COVID also came with some of its own, if you will, pathologies. So regulators told us, for instance, that they were much more aware and worried about fraud in a COVID environment where a lot of things have had to be put on the cloud or have had to be done remotely at relatively short notice or where firms have had to deal with staff that previously were very closely held in, in-house on a, on a remote basis. So, so, of course, the focus of regulators has, has had to change. So, Manos, if, if, if I were to try to summarize what you've told me, you're saying that the pace of regulatory change is accelerating to the point where financial institutions can no longer just throw, you know, human resources at this problem because it's, you know, it's, it's an exponentially changing situation. So it requires a sort of a, a technology um, solution to it. But would you also argue that the regulators need to be putting more technology at play here? Because presumably they also want to know how regulations are changing and being implemented and they want to make use of the data to make sure that, you know, I suppose we'll keep up with the potential rates of innovation to put that to good use in terms of financial inclusion and everything else. So would you say that the need for new technology applies to both regulated and the regulators? 
yeah, I mean, if, if anything, regulators are under more pressure. So when we say something like, you know, the pace of regulatory change has increased sevenfold since the financial crisis, well, you know, firms' compliance budgets have not increased sevenfold, but regulators' budgets have not increased at all, not in real terms anyway. And so regulators find themselves in these uh, very interesting challenges wherever there's this use of data involved. Like to give you a simple example, the, the first touch point with technology around regulation and compliance for most regulators is reporting. And if you talk to an emerging market regulator, not, not, not the poorest countries in the world necessarily, just, just you know, significant emerging markets, they will say, you know, firms report data to us. And by the time we've validated the data and made sure it's not garbage, it's three months old. Now, let's go back to that COVID discussion we just had. If you had three-month-old data on the uh, robustness, the financial stability of, of firms as a regulator, it would be useless. It's a snapshot from a completely different world. So you can see how COVID can really create a, an issue for regulators there and, and waken some of them to the challenges. But even if you think of more normal times, you know, the fintech revolution has created a, a very big fringe of very small, very marginal firms that fly sometimes under the radar of regulators and sometimes just above. And so, for instance, when the when the FCA took over payments, for instance, the population of firms that they were supposed to supervise more than doubled overnight. Now, their resources did not increase at all. So what exactly do you do when faced with a situation like that? You, ha you have to find some way of prioritizing your human resources. And the only way really to, to get to a point where you can do that is to invest in technology that allows you to prioritize better by getting insights more cheaply, more efficiently, where the risks are proportionately um, smaller. That's happening, is it not? So. You know, so we are getting lots and you know thousands of of new entrants into this space. New technology companies, new reg tech companies are entering this space to solve these challenges that regulated companies have and regulators have. I was reading before this podcast that I think collectively over ten billion dollars of new venture capital has got into the space in the last ten years. So, are are we solving this problem? At scale, do you think? Well, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, throwing more firms at the problem doesn't necessarily solve anything. It, it is a good indicator of how valuable the prize is, I guess, for, for whoever wins the race. Now, just to be clear, the, just the number of rectex really depends on uh, how you define this sector. So, you know, you will hear estimates from 800 all the way to the 2000 number that you, that you quoted. But the amount raised is almost always estimated the same way because most of the fundraising is concentrated in a handful of large firms. So this is one of the first things I, I think we need to, to keep in mind as context to this discussion. You will hear about RegTech growing very fast as a sector and, you know, all of the success stories. But the typical firm in the RegTech sector, we did our own research on this, has raised broadly some, somewhere in the order of $1.5 million. Now, I mean, it sounds like a lot of money if you give it to me to buy a car or a house even. But how much runway does it buy a technology company? Like less than a year. And to put it into further context, 
How long does it take from the moment, let's say, someone at the bank shakes your hand and says, well, they can't shake your hand anymore, but you know, looks you in the eye virtually and says, I love your product. We will definitely buy it. And the moment when you first see any money from them, usually about 18 months. So you have to put these two numbers together, like how much runway do they have versus how long it takes for them to actually convert prospects to, to paying customers. So most of this sector is not, you know, it, it isn't particularly successful financially. And, uh, and so there's, the sector is kind of rife for consolidation. Quite a few of these people are competing in very, very crowded segments. Also, of course, in our own research, what we've seen is that there was a, uh, a golden era of new market entry between, let's say, 2013 and 2017. And the pace of market entry has slowed since then quite, quite significantly. So this sector is now uh, growing more from the center than from the margins. So kind of big firms getting bigger as opposed to new firms joining. Now, to your question, though, the actual question was, you know, are they solving this, this problem? I think the, the first thing to bear in mind is that the sector has been around for like 20, 30 years, depending on how you define it. So, you know, you had regulatory intelligence applications 20 years ago, you had BPM and GRC applications 20 years ago, they've evolved since then, yes, but, but the fundamental kind of offerings were, were already being imagined at the time. What firms are now much better able to do, I would say, is first of all, they, they can scale a lot faster and deal with smaller institutions because their services can be delivered through the cloud and via APIs. It's much easier for them to work together. So hooking up different applications via APIs is now much more realistic than it used to be. And so what that means is that ideally, and we'll have to come back to this point, you know, no one firm has to build everything end to end, your entire kind of compliance factory. So so that that obviously helps. But there are areas where where Rectic has yet to make a significant uh, impact. Like if you try to map where most of the effort has gone, AML, reporting, you know, risk, particularly on the prudential side, between those three areas, you've probably captured 80, 90% of the, of the activity that we've seen, probably a lot more if you counted by funds raised. And then there are other areas, notably on conduct, for instance, that can, the kind of less tangible and quantitative areas of compliance where, uh, you know, you don't see the same level of success. And of course, even where the, you know, even where the rec tech sector is making inroads, good on them, you still have to ask yourself, how much success do we have to show for it? So in the AML space, you know, every year there's a, a new estimate of how much, how much, uh, what percentage of the illegal flows of funds are actually intercepted by AML controls. And it's usually always in the low single digits. So, you know, you have, yeah. to, you have to keep wondering, like, is this, is this really the, the best we can do? And listening to you, it sounds a bit like, you know, even, even though lots of money's got into this space and accepting that, you know, most of it's flowed to a few big firms rather than, you know, you know, the long tail of smaller supplies, it sounds like there's still a lot of duplication of activities in this space and also potentially like there's not complete coverage of the regulatory space, i.e. people keep shooting, I guess, for the, for the areas with the largest addressable market. 
So would you say that they're two of the challenges that still have, you know, that still persist, that the reg tech community is still duplicating a lot of its own efforts, as well as, you know, we perhaps don't have complete coverage yet of all the things, of all the areas of, of regulatory compliance? Absolutely. And, and I'm not sure that, you know, any one firm has a particularly good overview of its entire competitive environment, uh, just because so many people are, are trying this and many of them are still under the radar unless they've done two or three funding rounds and you start seeing kind of headlines about them. But but I think it's also, it's, it's also important to say that compliance in general involves a colossal duplication of effort. Like if you think about it, the regulations are the regulations. They, they are what they are. But there's thousands of financial services firms, each developing their own mapping of rules, you know, against their own internal systems. And you think, well, how much of that is duplicating effort? And is there really a business reason to, to, to duplicate this for each firm to do it on its own? Because compliance in itself does not confer a competitive advantage. Being able to manage risks better does. Being able to understand customers better does, of course. So some things the firms will always want to keep close to their chest, but compliance in itself does not. So so the duplication is, is quite substantial and not, not very not very rational. You mentioned in terms of technology change, you mentioned cloud, you mentioned APIs. What about AI? Because it seems to me that you know one big area of potential improvement here is to you know, is to train models. You know, you can imagine this particularly in the case of like financial crime, for example, where, you know, many actors contribute information about financial crime and and one provider can train the best models and can, can give the most sort of predictive or the best predictive analysis about where financial crime might arrive or, or you know, or to, or to stop financial crime based on patterns that seem in the past. So are we, are we seeing much innovation and headway being made, made thanks to it? AI in this space. I mean, we we are, and 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 I guess we we'd better because the the amount of processing power we can we can leverage these days is colossal. So you know, in the first AI spring uh, in the fifties and sixties, I'm not reminiscing. I wasn't there, but um, <laughs> but you know, back back then, it would take about seven minutes for a computer to, to parse one sentence or one paragraph's worth of text, and now we can do like billions of them in in the same amount of time you know obviously that helps having said this applications of ai mostly end up with a trade-off so think of it a little bit like a an industrial process where because at the end of the day most of the things that most of the applications of of ai that you'll see in compliance come down to statistical models you've got error rates you've got false positives, you've got false negatives. And the whole kind of quality assurance process is around saying, well, how many false positives and false negatives can we tolerate? And particularly, like, how many false negatives can we tolerate? Because that's that's where you get fined or put in jail. And so usually what happens is firms, certainly in compliance, are very, very reluctant to accept that there will be a consistent level of errors in a compliance process, particularly around things like AML. And so, you know, many will seek a level of uh, certainty that is just not possible. Some of them will tolerate redundancies and duplication just to make sure that they are that, that, that they are covered. And particularly in the in the larger firms, often you will have a duplication internally. If you're a tier one bank, there is actually a decent chance that you own 
that you've licensed software that duplicates things you built in-house, that you have licensed softwares from two different people that overlap. So there's, uh, the, you know, the, the, the strategy around incorporating AI in this area is still not fully fleshed out. What about this whole area of machine executable regulation? So, you know, I think this is certainly I've been reading about a lot of companies that are working on, you know, basically turning regulation into code, which can then be executed by machine. And this seems, you know, at least prima facie, like this is the most elegant solution to this problem, right? Because if regulation, if regulators can can put out very precise regulations and they can be turned into code, not only can that code then be executed immediately, but it will be executed exactly as the regulator intended to, to be executed. So that seems like the holy grail here. Would you, would you agree? And do you believe that this is realistic and that we're making progress in this direction? I mean, it, it, it is the holy grail, and uh, it's interesting be, because it's it's one area where kind of software developers and uh, and and lawyers kind of lead in the middle. They both both sides think like machines. They they want very precise and consistently worded inputs and outputs. But in reality, most regulation doesn't work that way. So the the, the hype around machine readable, machine executable regulation is what it is because some of the earliest use cases for RegTech and SubTech are around reporting. And reporting use cases involve heavily standardized data. I say heavily standardized. If you see them up front in raw, you know, in their raw form, they're not they're not always that good. But they involve much more standardized and much more quantitative data, more structured data as well than uh, most other Rectic use cases. So if you're only really interested in reporting and adjacent use cases, actually machine readable and machine executable regulation will happen. It will happen, you know, it's already happening in some domains and it will happen in, in most most others. Enormous amounts of money, enormous amount of attention and standard setting effort has gone has gone into those. But then there is a lot of regulation where this level of standardization of quantification and of structure just doesn't exist. Partly because that's not how it's been designed and it's very expensive to redesign it from scratch, but partly because regulators want it that way or legislators want it that way. So to give you an example that's close to my experience, let's say consumer credit regulations in the UK do not include any indication of what criteria somebody should meet in order to get a loan. Not because they couldn't come up with you know, a, a good sense of what credit worthiness looks like, because, but because legislators and regulators want firms to have the flexibility to come up with their own answer to the question. In other cases, the point isn't flexibility, but responsibility. So very often what the regulator wants is for the owners to be firmly on the firm to find a way to reassure the regulator that the outcomes are as the regulator expects. And so you can imagine a situation at the limit of this road towards machine-readable, machine-executable regulation where the regulator just releases their code and they say, okay, plug this in, connect it to your data lakes, and out will come compliant outcomes. If something goes wrong, who's, who's to blame? The only person left to blame now is the regulator. That's not a very comfortable place to be. 
certainly not if you're an independent regulator like if you if you come kind of sandwiched between industry and government that's the sort of thing that would that would end up with the regulator being crushed so so there is there will be a natural uh, resistance in some areas of regulation where uh, that uh, against this level of mechanization but even in reporting where this is supposed to work well you know if you hear the noises coming out of some of the kind of leading regulators in the world not least the the FCA here in the UK what you will what you will hear is that there is enormous amount of data standardization that needs to be done before the promise of even that use case which is the most promising regtech use case of all can be fulfilled so i'm you know i'm skeptical about the 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 pace at which we can move towards machine readable and machine executable regulation where we treat regulation as code now the opposite which does work but is uh, but, but is uh, more human in the way that it does work is treating regulation as content where we say the regulatory language is what it is and the job of of regtech isn't really to to turn it into you know push button executable code but rather to turn it into workflows and business rules and so the idea is that to get from the messy regulatory language to something that humans can work with you have to have some kind of mental map of what regulations are out there uh, a kind of taxonomy of regulatory obligations and concepts that's one side and you have to have a corresponding mental map uh, of what a firm looks like what matters to the firm so a firm doesn't see itself as a collection of compliance obligations it sees itself as a kind of collection of products and functions and the uh, locations and yes even processes and controls and policies and so on and so forth so you have to have both of those maps and then get them to talk to each other so create linkages between the two sides of the of the equation and if you've done that then effectively you can get either one application or multiple applications talking to each other via APIs to do these this this interesting kind of relay of regulatory content so regulatory content comes in it gets labeled according to where it has to go or what it's related to and then it's passed on to the appropriate application to the appropriate subject matter owner with an instruction that implies what kind of workflow is expected afterwards so that's messier it's more human Yeah um but for the same reasons it's it's bulletproof eventually someone will make sure that the that the system works whereas end to end can machine readable machine executable regulation will usually break down you know if we think about the idea of sort of machine executable regulation as being you know if we if we were to be on the high, on the gartner hype cycle it would probably say machine executable regulation in brackets for reporting right and then it would be somewhere quite early in the hype cycle because you know this is this is probably being hyped and it's you know we're going to go into the trough of disillusionment where are we with the alternative approach which is you know using i guess ai and classifiers and so on to be able to to classify regulatory text at scale and to serve it up as you said into workflows so it seems like the more promising approach and where are we in in the hype cycle with that kind of approach just before we move on from machine executable regulation i think the key moments in the hype cycle for that you know the the i, I probably 
the the key moments would have been the FCA and Bank of England's digital regulatory reporting pilot. Yeah. So that that was definitely a, a kind of high point in the hype cycle. And if you've read all of their lessons learned reports, you, you actually feel yourself sliding down the hype <laughs> cycle. It's uh, you know it's it's hard to read those and think oh this was like this was this was a slam dunk. But then you you look at things like you know ISDA's common domain model that, that basically gives you a way of of, of making both machine readable and and machine executable a lot of the contract terms around derivatives and you think well that's quieter but actually that's that seems to be working reasonably well and the the whole kind of cause of machine readable and executable regulation has been given uh, a, a new lease of life with the saudi led g20 sandbox which really focused on these types of applications. So, so you know, I think we, we've still got some time of hype left in the machine executable side of things. But, but as you said, I, th- I think there's a lot more to be said for regulation as content and, and, and the, the other side or the, the less ambitious kind of side of, of RegTech. And there, I guess the, the level of maturity is very good. So when we looked at the market at last, you could probably name something in the order of 25 to 30 platforms or tools that are in the regulatory intelligence space that are really making significant headway in organizing regulation according to themes and topics and using things like natural language processing and machine learning to automate that so that they can read rule books at scale. Now, where you want to go eventually is that there's there's one kind of virtual front end to every rule book in the world. We're not we're not there yet. But but equally, I think as long as you're thinking of private standards only, we're not that far either. I mean, there's there's very significant work doing, and you can already name three or four firms that are way out ahead of of anyone else. I won't name them here. Now, what you don't have though is some way of reconciling all these proprietary standards into one language of regulation. And that's quite hard for for someone on the purchasing side because what it means is if you've done a lot of work to onboard one of these suppliers and mapped all of your internal systems and controls and processes to their dictionaries and their map of compliance, what then happens if you want to change supplier, you know, or what what has to happen if you want to onboard some other compliance application that needs to talk to that first one, but just doesn't know the language. That's the bit that we don't yet have a very good answer for. And there's no clear kind of commercial incentive for firms to create that. Which is the segue, is it not, into the regulatory genome project? Because that is at least partly a public good right and it's aimed at solving exactly this problem of of creating uh common standards and interoperability right at the, at the level below commercial applications that's correct so let, let's start with a little bit of background on the regulatory genome project so at the ccf we were approached in 2017 by what is now flourish ventures and was then part of the Amidia network with a very specific use case so these guys were impact investors they invested in fintechs mostly in emerging and frontier markets that they were kind of mission driven to improve financial inclusion and what they said was look we're, our portfolio is doing 
quite well. But one of the things that usually gets in the way of growth and, and manifests itself in the kind of growth plateau at the time that is not really helpful for our firms is that if you want to grow beyond a certain point, then you have to expand at least on a regional basis. So let's, let, let's say you start off in Kenya and you want to cover all of East Africa. Very reasonable. So when, when the firms reach that stage in their development, it's, it's actually quite hard for them to grow because different markets, even within the same region, even if there's a certain level of integration, have different rules. And so a lot of time and money and lawyers' fees has to go into making sure that you get market entry just right from a compliance basis. And there's there's no obligation for regulators to be consistent with each other or to make life easy for you. So when they came to us with that question saying, you know, you have access to resources at the university, you know, cutting-edge research on NLP, you know, machine learning engineers. Isn't there something that you could build that would parse regulation across jurisdictions and make it comparable? And we thought at the time, well, look, this is a nice applied research program. Of course, we'd, we'd be interested in looking into this. But what we found as, as we went along and created a pilot application and tested it and saw they worked reasonably well, we thought, well, we've only covered one domain in this area. We, we came up with an AML model. We've, we've only covered one domain. And anyone we tried to take this to as a potential user would say, well, what about this other area of application? So they might say, okay, AML, good. What about cyber? Or payments, great. But what about insurance? And, and it seemed to us that we were going down this, this rabbit hole of, of just mapping out all the regulation in the world in order to create this one product. Uh, obviously, there was also a, a kind of existential question. The, the, you know, the, the university isn't really a regtech vendor. We didn't want to be permanently in the business of building applications. And it's a busy space out there, right? There's there's other people who have done this longer and they, they know this better. So we thought, what is it that we feel is really needed? Is there a public good that our research can produce? Now, that is consistent with the mission of the university. And so we thought of, the, of, of an analogy to, I guess, the life sciences. And, and at the time, because we were, we were dealing with people who had been involved in the, in the human genome project, it kind of triggered this thinking of, are we... It, is what we're trying to build really kind of parallel to the human genome project? And this pilot application we built, something analogous to an application like 23andMe. And then from that kind of thinking came the genesis of what we now call the regulatory genome project. So we basically thought we need to find a way to fund and resource and guide a long-term project that maps all regulation. And then to make sure that it's available to people truly as a public good, we have to not only avail make the, the rules, uh, the marked up rules, I should say, the classified rules as, as open data or as near as open as we, can, as we can make it, but also we need to find a way to release some of the pent-up innovation out there by allowing developers and firms to work on this map of regulation, this global map of regulation, and build their own applications. And that way, we don't have to be, you know, the guys who build everything. We can tap into the creativity and technical skills out there. I think what's really important also, just 
to bear in mind is the skill sets on the two ends of this journey yeah. are just very different. So building a map of regulation requires a certain amount of technical expertise in the areas of regulation. It requires very strong ties with regulators, which the university has, whereas building applications on what we call kind of the right-hand side of, of, the, of this journey requires very different skills and, and, and a deeper understanding of how the institutions work internally as, as kind of organizations. So what does it mean to keep the machine kind of running? And so to expect somebody to, to cover all of that is actually quite hard. That means that most people who have innovative ideas in RegTech, either coming from one end or the other end, can't really deliver the whole thing. So, so I guess the, this is a long way of saying that the, the, the key principles behind the Genome Project are, first of all, regulation should be available in machine-readable form as a public good. This is stuff the firms are required to know by law. They're made with public money. There is no reason for it to not be open data in a machine-readable format. That's principle number one. Principle number two is all of this information must be available to developers in such a way that people can build applications around it. And finally, uh, and this is a key, a key point, both the representation of regulation and the resulting application need to be interoperable. You need to have one common language of regulation. It's true, different jurisdictions regulate in different ways. So you'll never get to the point where you say, well, this requirement in Brazil is exactly equivalent to that requirement in Mongolia. But what you do have in the middle is a kind of regulatory Rosetta Stone that can map regulations from any given country against a common framework. Think about, I don't know, the duodecimal system, right? If you go into a, a library and you're a librarian from anywhere in the world, of course, the books are going to be different, but you know that nonfiction is going to be there and you know that, I don't know, life sciences are going to be there. So that's the, the level of interoperability we want to, to get to. And, and how, do, how do you get there? How do you sequence the genome of regulatory information so let's uh, yeah let's get as practical as we can so so it starts with a paper exercise i mean paper excel exercise whereby you create almost a hierarchical list of regulatory concepts and obligations you usually do it by domain so you might say here's my taxonomy of aml concepts and obligations here's my taxonomy of cybersecurity and so on and so forth and, uh, you know, some of these taxonomies are what you might call horizontal. They cut across the entire financial services industry. So the two examples I gave just now, some of these are vertical. So you might have payments, for instance, insurance, crowdfunding, which is one of the areas of the, of the center's kind of particular attention and, and expertise. And what you do is you create this hierarchical list of obligations. So, for instance, you might say, I don't know, let's, let's say you're, you're dealing with investments right? You might have client categorization and within that definition of a, an accredited or professional counterparty. You know, perhaps not the best example, but the, but the point is that you always move from higher level, more general obligations or families of obligations to more specific ones. Now, at the end of each of these branches, if you will, you will have an end node. You know, you will have the most detailed level of classification of regulations that the that the genome can manage. Now, in theory, 
there is no limit. You, you can keep making them more specific and more specific and more specific. But remember, the genome as a public good is, is about making regulations comparable across jurisdictions. So there is a natural stopping rule. You want to stop at the point where the regulatory requirements at the end node are still comparable internationally. So, for instance, client categorization, yes, that's comparable. You know, distinction between professional slash accredited investors and more ordinary retail investors, yes, that's comparable. But if you go all the way to saying, you know, treatment of local authorities for the purposes of client categorization, you are getting now so far into the weeds that you're going to get you're going to draw blanks for most jurisdictions and then for everyone who's subject to MIFID you will just have this note that says actually in most cases these people are retail clients you know so you can you can guess where the stopping rule is what the stopping rule is you 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 go as many level down levels down as you can until you reach a point where international comparability is compromised so so that's how you build that. And now, up, up to this point, you're still kind of in paper world. You can still be doing that in Excel. But then, once you're happy with the structure you have created, then you can start using machine learning. And machine learning relies basically on collecting large amounts of, of data from a diverse sample and teaching the machine that a specific example corresponds to a specific node. So for instance, let's say you have rules around creditworthiness assessments of consumer borrowers in different jurisdictions. You basically say to the machine, this is a creditworthiness assessment related obligation. This is as well, this is as well, this isn't. And you repeat that over and over and over again until you can train basically a statistical model which lives as code and you know we call a, a classifier you know so 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 that our model can now take in unfamiliar text and take a stab at what category it fits into so next time around you feed uh regulatory text that you know you've never seen before to the same classifier and it can say what the probability is that it is about creditworthiness and you set yourself a cutoff and you say well if it's above let's say 70%, 80%, we'll mark that as a one. And so what that does is if you try to imagine now the kind of machine readable version of the same regulatory document, that paragraph or that piece of text now carries a tag, an electronic tag that says this corresponds to this type of obligation. And any other application that knows the universe of tags that you're working with, your taxonomy, can now read this and say, oh, okay, so I, I know that this paragraph now is about this. And that's how you might be able, for instance, to run queries via an API. You might say, can you bring me all the text that's tagged as creditworthiness assessment? How difficult is the tech there? It, it sounds almost like, you know, provided you train the classifiers with enough data, then the results will get better and better and better. So would you say it's more of a challenge to get the data than it is to, to get the tech? Or is, am I oversimplified? Um, so it's a good it's a good question. I mean, I I don't want to downplay how difficult it is to get the tech. Like the the colleagues who who we have working on this are obviously you know at the top of their game. Having said that, the technology comes with its own significant challenges. What do I mean by that? You know, there isn't an enormous amount of regulatory text out there. Now, this may sound really funny, you know, bearing in mind what I said earlier. About yeah, the sevenfold increase you mentioned earlier, yeah. That's true. But, but, you know, from a machine learning point of view, 
If you look at what kind of corpora people are working with to train machine learning models, they will usually use, you know, all of Twitter for the last three years or, you know, the entire text of Wikipedia or the entire internet come to that. So, you know, in comparison to things like that, the amount of regulatory text out there is not enormous. And so a lot of the challenge is around making sure you have enough sample to actually build good models. The other thing, I guess, which people you know, need to appreciate is that the, the the returns to just having more more samples start to diminish reasonably early. So you know the models don't get exponentially better as you as you double or triple the amount of data you have access to. Where this becomes really challenging is first of all when you look at really new or niche areas. So let's say tomorrow, you know, one of our regulators came up with a very, very specific type of obligation in relation to making, let's say, AI auditable. So it says, if you know, if you implement any AI applications as a firm, you have to make sure that they are auditable to buy a regulator, whatever that means. You know, in the early days, only one regulator will have any references to that. So your sample is going to be tiny, right? That is a, that is a problem. Because it means your model, you know, runs the risk of having blind spots and you have to find ways of bootstrapping the small sample that you do have in order to make sure that the classifiers work. I'm not saying that's not possible. And obviously my colleagues are working on things like that, but, uh, but it is challenging. And it's also challenging when you look at non-English text, because if you tried to create, you know, if you create a classifier for English AML obligation, uh, AML obligations written in English, that's going to be completely useless if uh, you're reading documents in Spanish. But the problem is, if you want to replicate that process in Spanish, your corpus of documents now becomes a lot smaller. And Spanish is, you know, a major global language. Try doing that in Japanese. Try doing that in, uh, you know, in, in less widely uh, used languages that are not the language of business for for many people that is another major issue in 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 that area but i guess the final issue will always be with these things and i i've I've already mentioned it once already is that at, at the end of the day there will be errors and and there's a question of you know how much liability should the parties accept for these errors and who does it sit with if we move beyond the tech and the data, although I think this is a bit related to the data, but to the to this idea of like the chicken and egg problem, because it's not difficult to foresee a time when the genome exists. And therefore, you know, if you're a reg tech provider, you would build any new reg tech application on the genome because therefore is, you know, because you then don't need to do all of the the mapping of taxonomies yourself. You can just you can just query the the public good, right? But between now and then, you've basically got to convince, app, you know, application software providers to build on the genome. You've got to, you've got to convince regulators to work with you. You've got to convince commercial users to use it. So, how do you go about building that ecosystem around the genome to make it successful in the in the first place? Or, in other words, how do you solve that chicken and egg problem? So, it's a it's a fair, fair question. I mean, there are there is a place you can start obviously and it depends on where your relative strengths are so uh, if you know if you look at other initiatives that have tried to kind of force some level of convergence within industry they would usually have some 
strength in one area or the other. Now, if you're talking about the university's areas of expertise, obviously, because of our work in capacity building with financial regulators, that for us is the obvious place to start. So we've got very strong links to financial regulators around the world. And we also know that they have a very strong use case around regulatory benchmarking. So remember what we said earlier in this podcast that regulators are always checking to see, uh, you know, they're always checking their homework against the, the the guy who sits next to them. And and so this benchmark, these benchmarking exercises are, you know, painstaking things, expensive, very slow. I remember one regulator saying, you know, if I had a tool that could do this, I would have nine months of my life back on just the last project, which was quite, quite, quite intense. But I, I, I sympathize that uh, with that. So the first people to reach out to are regulators, but regulators being involved gives confidence to financial services firms. And not just confidence in the quality of the taxonomies and the classifiers, because frankly, regulators will never pull out a big rubber stamp and saying, I approve of this. But what a firm can see is that if this is good enough for the regulator to use for their own use cases, then you know maybe this is this is good enough for for us as well. I think it's also you know as far as uh, industry is is concerned, this standard setting process is is also an opportunity to to influence in the direction of of the common good in the sense that. Of course, you know, no regulator is going to go to a consortium of firms and say, how should I write my AML rules? But giving them the tools to compare against their peers will usually give you, as a result, better regulation. Because people will now have an evidence base on which to say, you know, what is common practice? What is good practice? How do, do different things correlate with market outcomes or consumer outcomes? So from an industry perspective, even though you can't just lobby these people in a crude way, they are have been given tools whereby internally they can come up with better outcomes for things that you care about. So that's another reason why industry really, you know, ought to care about creating something like this. And then once you've got, you know, a few major banks, a few major fund managers, a few major insurers on board, as well as a developer platform through which you can access these assets, then as a developer, it becomes quite reassuring to know that you can build on this standard because you've got the sense that whatever else happens, there are some people who are already on board and will use application or will build applications against that standard. So your investment, your one-off investment in mapping all of your internal systems to this common denominator set will not be wasted. And, and as a developer, that can be quite attractive because the alternative is that every time you onboard a new major client, you have to do all sorts of ad hoc fixes so that your systems talk to theirs, which is you know, expensive work that you're not always going to get paid for because the client, as far as they're concerned, it pays for the actual result, not for, you know, the, the, the path you have to walk in order to make sure you can service them. So you've just launched the Genome Project and you've just started to, to try to recruit new members, new consortium members of, or, or the, the private sector, the regulated users of, of the Genome. First of all, how is that going? And secondly, if I were a large financial institution and I had, you know, significant resources to invest in RegTech, and as you say, I already had many, many existing RegTech applications and suppliers, what would be the case you would make to me to, to, to join the consortium? 
It is true. We we have been in conversation with with a number of major financial institutions, starting with some of the larger ones, as you might imagine, for obvious reasons, which are now starting to yield results in in the uh, in the form of you know potential collaborations. Now, you know that activity is not going to end anytime soon because at the end of the day you want as much of the industry on board the consortium as possible but once the first step of recruiting firms is significantly underway then uh, the work begins to build out the rest of the genome and also to recruit developers and make sure that you raise awareness of the benefits of your of your platform and to build the kind of tools that will help developers you know build applications against the genome so there's a significant kind of technology roadmap there's a significant business development roadmap as well as of course the semantic roadmap whereby we're actually you know creating the genome itself so this is just the beginning but we're already seeing some of the first successes. Similarly, on the regulatory engagement side, so you know we've had our first few workshops uh, with individuals from the regulatory community who are willing to dedicate their time to review and make suggestions to um, to, to improve the various uh, taxonomies, and so. You know, I'm quite confident that if we're speaking again this time next year, a significant percentage of financial regulation will have been mapped and come 2022 we'll be in a position where people can can actually start building applications if i'm a bank and i want to make this case internally because i presume there's you know there's there's a price point to to join the consortium how would you convince me practically that it makes sense yeah, I guess it's always a very different conversation when you when you're dealing with a major financial institution that actually has done a fair amount of work in the regtech space, and and pretty much all of them do. If you, if you speak to Tier One Bank, they have been bombarded with proposals from from regtechs and even from potential consortiums as well, and so. I guess the way people will usually respond is, you know, why do I really need this sort of thing? I've already got fairly mature solutions in-house that I'm reasonably happy with. So where's the the real kind of long-term strategic value? And I guess the, there's there's three layers to this. The first one is has to do with how, how procurement works effectively. It's great that you've got a supplier that you're happy with. That's That's amazing. However, what it also does is it locks you in because you've invested a significant amount adjusting your internal systems to fit with theirs and particularly adjusting and at the semantic level. So making sure that all of your other applications speak the same language as the vendor and can map to the same taxonomies. Now, that's usually a significant sunk cost. And so a firm that wants to move away from a supplier relationship doesn't actually have a lot of very good options because they'll have to take on the cost of doing this all over again if they onboard somebody new. And it's very unlikely that they'll be able to get a startup, for instance, to to do that work because the startup just doesn't have the cash and the runway uh, with which to do it. So, so you end up in a situation where you've got significant supplier lock-in, and uh, it shouldn't really be the the way that a major financial institution runs compliance technology. So that's one part of the answer. The other part of the answer is that usually, even when you do have really good applications, they tend to be limited in scope. 
So they will either be limited to a few domains that they were originally built on. So let's say, you know, anywhere in Europe or anywhere in firms that deal with Europe in any way, people will have built ad hoc systems to deal with MIFID compliance, for instance. You can't then repurpose that to deal with some new type of, of securities law that comes in 10 years down the line. I mean, if you're lucky, maybe you have architected that way, but most people will not have. So the benefit is that dealing with a kind of de facto standard like the genome, when as and when it becomes available, builds some longevity into the applications that you do build. And obviously, it's not just, uh, you know, scalability across domains. It's also, are you able to serve jurisdictions that are not, in the magic circle that jurisdictions uh, of jurisdictions that um, suppliers usually target. So if you think about uh, what most applications can deal with, they can deal with EU, UK, US and Canada, Australia, Hong Kong, Singapore. That's your magic circle. Beyond that, you know, here be dragons in many cases. So, so being able to have that same level of of scalability and functionality beyond those core jurisdictions is is a huge benefit. And then finally, and I think this is the 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 more where interoperability really comes into its own is when you deal with suppliers or partners to to whom you have to cascade regulatory obligations or which with which you are tied together in a in a compliance pipeline. So I'm thinking of things like, for instance, product governance, where the producer of a financial product and the distributor of a financial product are tied together in a set of obligations around, for instance, identifying what the target market of a product is, you know, identifying any, you know, any applicable risks, understanding what kind of uses the clients are supposed to have for these products, reporting on whether it is sold and distributed in the way that was envisaged. Now, all of that requires that information flows between two very different firms. You know, the distributor might be, you know, a huge bank or it might be an IFA. You know, the producer will usually be a very substantial financial institution, but they can be very different is what I'm saying. Similar things happen, for instance, when you cascade obligations in the area of cybersecurity uh, or, or cyber resilience, where the, the two organizations, the, the supplier, the vendor and the buyer are actually very different organizations. So if you need their systems to talk to each other, you need some common denominator to map them against each other. Otherwise, you risk, again, that kind of lock-in that we talked about earlier with regards to suppliers. So I think the bottom line here is, even if you've already gone quite a way and had a lot of success in implementing RegTech within the organization, the appeal of interoperable applications and open standards, I think, should be quite significant. Let's assume that you build this, it gets wide usage, then we can imagine you overcome the chicken and egg problem. Then we can imagine that the network effects, the flywheel of network effects will really start to kick in. And, you know, and then you'll be able to level the blame field between regulators. Regulators will get better feedback to make better regulations. There'll be fewer barriers to entry for new reg tech companies. And so you'll see this sort of unleashing of new reg tech innovation. Firms will be able to comply with regulation uh, more cost effectively, more quickly. 
what, what would you describe that as the end state the kind of collective good that will be created or is there anything i've missed so so i think i think uh, no i think you're mostly there i mean uh, the, what i'd li- what i would expect to see if this whole thing works properly is that in the end there is a marketplace where firms can engage developers to work on the genome you know they don't need to involve any of us in 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 any way but also regulators can start writing regulations so that it's as machine readable as possible so for instance uh, you know right now there are standards like a comantoso for writing machine readable documents at the document level you know you can do a lot better than that if you have a common standard for what is in an AML document or what might be in a cybersecurity document. At some point, once you've reached critical mass, you'll start to penetrate a lot more deeply into how regulators do their work and also a lot more deeply into how people build applications. And that to me is what is what success will really look like that people you know start considering your standards at the outset of building their tools and applications manos thank you so much for coming on the show it's been great thanks for having me it's been a pleasure thank you for listening to structural shifts by aperture to learn more about us visit aperture.co we are strategy for the networked age until next time